0: In many homes today, that's a celebration of Cinco de Mayo. In my home, it's a celebration of my wife's birthday. And it's a milestone one she's not very happy about, which reminds me of a movie line. It says, time is a predator that stalks us through our days when we should think of it as a companion reminding us to cherish every moment because they will not come again. I've cherished every moment with her. Happy birthday and happy Cinco de Mayo. Let's get to the news. The answer was always so obvious, but so many people tried to block it over the years. At last, it is here. Laura, what is the good news for those who have been seeking to stop farm runoff from causing huge blooms of algae in Lake Erie near Toledo?
1: This is big news. Ohio is finally going to have to limit the phosphorus that flows into the lake. So environmentalists have been pushing for this for years. The Lucas County Commissioners and the Environmental Law and Policy Center sued the Ohio EPA in 2017 in federal court to start this case. And then on Thursday, Judge James Carr ruled that the Ohio EPA must submit a final plan to limit phosphorus runoff into the Maumee River watershed to the U.S. EPA by June 30th. The U.S. EPA has 90 days to approve it. This is called a TMDL for a total maximum daily load. And if the U.S. EPA doesn't like it, they can create their own. And then Lucas County commissioners and the Environmental Law and Policy Center can come back if they don't think it's high enough. But Carr had pretty strong language. She said that, and this is a consent decree. I mean, I think people know that word, those two words together when we're talking about um, the police with a federal agreement, you know, with Cleveland or something, but they have them with water systems. They have anytime a federal government says, you got to do this to a local government. So um, he says this is the final chapter of the plaintiff's persistent. Unyielding quest to obtain joint commitment from the EPA and the state to undertake a crucial first step toward the restoration of the Lake Erie's Western Basin. Because until now, Ohio and, you know, Mike DeWine has put millions of dollars toward this, but it's been a completely voluntary plan. Like, please, farmers, do do the right thing. Put in drainage tiles, plant cover crops, because we don't want to pollute our lake.
0: I remember early in the John Kasich administration when he was governor, I think he even was in our office when we were talking to him about this, And we were asking about it because there's no doubt about what has caused this. It's phosphorus runoff. It always was. And he was in our faces saying, ah, the science isn't clear about that. And I'm never going to approve a limit on phosphorus. The agricultural lobby, I guess, like every single lobby in Ohio, is so powerful that we were not doing the right thing for years and years and years. And even DeWine, Wimpy Mike DeWine makes it voluntary. It's sad to me that it took... Lucas County commissioners suing the state government to do its damn job and a judge to enforce order. Why couldn't the government do the right thing all along? Because they're in the pocket of lobbyists, as we see over and over again. We're seeing it in the constitutional amendment. We see it in everything they do down there. This could have been avoided 20 years ago. And here we are.
1: Yeah, I mean, Ohio in 2015 signed a deal with Michigan and Ontario to say we're going to limit the phosphorus, we're going to reduce it by 40 percent. They are nowhere close to doing that, and and it, it's very sad as someone who loves the lake and and just as an Ohioan that we've just allowed this pollution to continue. To be clear, phosphorus comes from fertilizer and it comes from manure, and when you put it on the ground, especially when there's hard rains and we get more and more of those with climate change, that runs into the watershed, this little stream streams that then run into the Maumee River and then run into Lake Erie. And that's where the majority of the phosphorus comes into the lake, even though the majority of our water comes from the Detroit River. That's not a huge point of the pollution. So it's all those farms, it's in Northwest Ohio, it's in Indiana and some in Michigan that pollutes the lake. And then it creates this huge mat of scum all the way from You know, Toledo to the Erie Islands, where you look at these pictures, it looks like a science fiction movie, right? Because the water is like lime, gross, green, and it stinks and it's toxic. And in 2014, it actually, you couldn't drink the water in Toledo for days.
0: Yeah. I, th- this is one that could have been solved a long time ago. And people say, oh, but what about the farmers? What about the farmers? Well, the farmers are polluting the lake. So right. something and- has to be done. When I lived in Florida, there's this giant lake down there in central Florida called Lake Apopka. And the same thing had happened there for years. Huge runoff. It turned it into just a fetid stew. It was a disaster. And the state ended up buying all the farms around it. And I was down there a few years ago. I was amazed at how fast the turnaround happened. It's this giant nature park where you can see all sorts of birds and, and alligators and everything because the state did something about it. It's like, okay, we don't want to harm the farmers. We'll buy their farms. We'll preserve it. And we'll take this gigantic lake that is toxic and fix it. Ohio should be doing something similar instead John Kasich, Mike DeWine, the entire legislature—they've done nothing aff- affirmative to to stop these farms from polluting.
1: And I, I do want to make clear: obviously, there are family farmers, and and it's hard to make a living farming. My. Both, ba- both sides of my parents come from farm generations, but there's a lot of massive confined feeding operations that we're talking about too, where they just have piles of animal manure that just gets spread on ground, sometimes frozen. and doesn't do anything. They just have to get rid of all the poop from like hundreds of animals that they have cooped up, you know, for, for food sources. So when you think farmers and, you know, it's very Americana, right? Like nobody wants to hurt the farmers. These are corporations.
0: Right. It's the agricultural lobby. What's going to be sad is if the DeWine administration, instead of doing what the judge says, if they appeal it, um, which they could, they could go to a federal appeals court. Who knows? You're listening to Today in Ohio. The young upstart beat the veterans supported by the establishment. No, we're not in a time warp. Talking about Justin Bibb's defeat of Kevin Kelly in the Cleveland's mayor's race in 2021. We are talking about Akron. Lisa, who won, who lost, and what to make of it all?
2: I think it's wonderful. I think we're finally seeing an on-ramp for younger, more diverse people in areas of leadership. So first term Akron City Councilman and Attorney Ashamas Malik, I believe that's how it's pronounced, is the presumptive winner in a seven-way mayoral race in Akron. He had an early lead and he never gave it up the entire night. Um, he got 43.2% of the vote. Far behind him with a 17-point deficit was uh, Deputy Mayor of Inter-Go- Intergovernmental Affairs Marco Somerville, a longtime Akron Politico. Number three was Akron Councilwoman Tara Mosley with 17.5% of the vote. So Malik is the first person of color to lead Akron's 190,000 residents in its 200-year history, and he did wait until all the precincts were counted on election night before he gave his victory speech and he was introduced by his Aunt Mary. He said that, uh, you know, you've sent a message loud and clear and change is coming. Malik also raised a record $400,000 in his campaign and a 100000 of that just in the last two weeks before the election. He had 70 volunteers canvassing the city on election day with a final appeal to voters at the polls.
0: What was interesting about this is as soon as Horrigan said, I'm not running again, he endorsed Somerville. It, it was like, but let's put the fix in right away. And let's not let the people decide the establishment got behind Somerville. It was very similar to what happened when Kevin Kelly ran for mayor, the whole establishment of Cleveland was behind him. And yet Justin Bibb trounced him. And that happened here as well. That mm-hmm. the, 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 the people are fed up with the old guard. They clearly want new ideas. You have, you have a similar situation in Cincinnati. You participated in the editorial board interview of the candidates. And what was your takeaway from that?
2: Well, I, you know, we always take a poll at the end of the interview, and you know, say who we like. And I think we all picked Malik as our number one choice. I know that I did. I think he came out very strong on. He was talking about developing a thousand city-owned vacant lots for infill development. He was. He was really. He actually brought it to the for the subject about the Akron Police Department, which is crumbling. And, you know, they're talking about either renovating or replacing. And he says, I think we need to replace it.
0: The, the Democratic Party in Ohio, as we've talked about many times, is a disaster. They have no bench. But with what you're seeing in the cities right now, these young, energetic, innovative thinkers taking the positions, this could be the future of politics in Ohio. It's exciting to see. You know, we, we've we been talking about Justin Bibb this year. In his second year, now that he's got his footing, he's proposing some very bold, innovative ideas that could be change you know changeworthy of the for the city are we going to see the same thing in akron in a year are we going to see the same thing in cincinnati um it's it's a very cool development as long as these guys avoid the temptations that come at them because they're in power <laughs> to do bad things they've got to maintain integrity they've got to represent the people
2: I think this is the forefront of a generational change. I mean, we've been moaning about all these old white-haired men that are running for president and other offices, and we haven't seen that generational shift, but I think we're starting to see it in Northeast Ohio.
0: It's it's interesting to see it's playing out in the urban areas this way, whereas the rural areas seem like they're still behind. But uh, interesting development. the The margin of victory was was what struck me. This wasn't even close. The establishment had no say in this one. The former mayor, Don Pusqualec, also endorsed Somerville. Didn't mean anything. Actually, that might have steered more votes away from Somerville because Pusqualec isn't remembered all that fondly. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The use of Genealogy DNA Databases has solved the 1997 rape of a nine-year-old boy who finally was able to confront his attacker during a dramatic sentencing yesterday. What did the boy tell his rapist, Layla, and what startling confession did the rapist make?
3: Well, this is just a heart-wrenching case that, that speaks to the incredible power of DNA technology. This attack happened in 1997 in a wooded area behind a church in in, in the suburb of Brooklyn. And the boy who was nine years old at the time went to the church with his father and while his father was tending to some business inside the church, the boy had gone outside to play on a wooded playground where he encountered a man who we now know was Dennis Gribble walking through the woods. And Gribble enticed the boy into the woods with a promise that the boy would get to ride a dirt bike. And in the woods he raped the boy and threatened to kill him if he told anyone. But the boy ran back to the church. He immediately told his father. And unfortunately, the case ran cold because the rapist DNA did not match anyone in, in the database at the time. So then for more than two decades, the case went unsolved until one day the victim heard about a special task force that had been created to test old sexual assault evidence kits and search for matches. And he called the prosecutor's office and asked for his case to be reexamined. He had also learned about the work that had been that had been uh, done in the world of DNA and how genealogists had participated in solving cases uh, like the Golden State Killer. And it turns out that the prosecutor's office was launching a pilot project working with that exact genealogist and a company that runs a DNA database. Both both of those were instrumental in solving that Golden State Killer case years back, and they decided to include the ca- the victim's case in their pilot. They discovered that they had just enough DNA left in the test tubes from the Brooklyn Police Department all those years back to run through the process. And lo and behold, they were able to narrow down the source of his attacker's DNA to Gribble or one of his six brothers. So this victim was able to pick Gribble out of a lineup with 100% certainty. They tested Gribble's DNA. It was a match. He pleaded guilty and has now received a 10-year sentence, which sounds low, but that was the maximum he could have received under the law at the time that he committed this crime. And in court, the victim made a very powerful statement. He told Gribble Gribble that despite everything that he stole from him as a child, he was no longer his victim. And then Gribble told the court something that I think startled everybody, including prosecutor Michael Malley. He said that He's been sexually assaulting children his entire life, and that he can't help himself. In fact, the victim in this case remembered that Gribble had told him at the time that he had raped two other boys before him. And Gribble did, in fact, spend time in prison for raping children between 1969 and 1972. So it's likely that there are many other survivors out there whose lives were interrupted in childhood by this predator.
0: Yeah. And the, the, the victim also said he had to go to that school for six more years. I, I mean, he had to face what happened to him for six more years. It's just, it's horrible. And, and it's, and it's horrible that the 10 years is all they can give him. They, and the guy said, I can't help myself. I've been doing this forever. Um, so if he gets out in 10 years, he'll be in his eighties. It, it could happen again. I mean, it, it, and you don't know how many other victims there are. I'm hoping the publicity about this brings them out. I understand CBS Sunday Morning was in to cover this case. So this will get some national attention as well, maybe. Uh, and hopefully there'll be more victims so that this guy never gets out again. This was yeah. crushing. But, you know, the vict- you got to give real credit to the victim. Absolutely. He, he wouldn't let it go. He just, you know, he, he's, hey, Try this. Try this. Try this. This guy has haunted me. Let's get him. Such Mm -hmm.
3: such courageous. uh, I mean, really, this he's a a young man who's 35 years old now, has a family of his own. And clearly he uh, I mean, he he did such a courageous thing that that will put this guy behind bars for at least a decade. And hopefully others will find the courage to and um, keep keep the guy behind bars for longer.
0: It's a heck of a story by Corey Schaefer. It's on Cleveland.com, and you're listening to Today in Ohio. Secretary of State Frank LaRose is trying to take away the majority rule from Ohio residents, but now someone is taking something from him. Why did LaRose's wife summon police to their house, Laura?
1: because his car was stolen right out of his garage. The door might have been inadvertently left open, but his wife called the police in Upper Arlington, where they lived at the suburb of Columbus, at 4.18 a.m. on April 26th to say that multiple people had entered their garage. He drives a t- 2018 Chevy. Equinox. And apparently they found it parked around the corner, the police did. An American Express card was missing. The car contained, quote unquote, campaign supplies, including keys and a state ID badge. So the report didn't say whether those were recovered or not. But you wonder if it was just like a lark and they had no idea whose car they were stolen. And then when they saw it, were like, oh, God, this is going to be like prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Maybe we just leave this car here.
0: Except they took the credit card. Who leaves a credit card in their car? I mean, that just seems <laughs> like it's pretty irresponsible to me. This well, is the I, guy... I mean,
1: the keys and the state ID badge is also yeah. problematic, right? I like, know, what's you're... in that office?
0: This is the guy we count on to safeguard our elections, and he's leaving his credit card in his car. Hmm, that's a red flag. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Joe Biden thought he was making it easier for Americans to fight climate change through the use of solar panels, but even fellow Democrat Sherrod Brown voted against him on this one. What did the U.S. Senate do with Biden's solar panel initiative, Lisa?
2: Sherrod Brown and his Republican colleague J.D. Vance voted to overturn Biden's suspension of tariffs on Chinese solar panels and components. It did pass the Senate on a 56 to 41 vote. Vance said if we're going to have clean energy economy, it should be made in the U.S. and not China. But then he said actions by Biden on subsidies and regulations for solar help build the clean energy economy in China. Brown, in a Senate floor speech, said it's a simple choice. You stand with American workers or you stand with China and continue to lose our industrial base. So the House also voted to pass um, a similar legislation, 212 to 202, with 12 Democrats joining most Republicans on this. But It may be for not because the White House says that Biden will veto the joint resolution. He says more time is needed to boost domestic production. And this two year tariff suspension is a temporary bridge to satisfy satisfy demand for solar. But without a two thirds majority in the House and Senate, they can't override a Biden veto on this.
0: But this is one where Biden maybe shouldn't veto it. I mean, he, he had a good motive. We have to have enough solar panels in this country to stop climate change. But the Congress is saying, oh, we don't disagree. We just want them made here instead of giving China a break. So what Biden might want to do is provide the subsidies needed to get more made in America. Because uh, clearly people on both sides uh, don't want to help China. China is not a friend of America these days. Be interesting to see if Biden stands his ground or acquiesces.
2: I think it would be interesting, you know, because Vance said he called out, you know, subsidies that, you know, we have given, you know, that allowed it to happen in China. So I wonder if he would vote for solar and renewable subsidies.
0: Well, you would hope so, because we need to get there. Clearly, we're, we're suffering the results of climate change. Anybody with an allergy can speak to that this year, because the season has been twice as long. Uh, interesting case where, where Sherrod Brown breaks with the leader of his party. I wonder, is he running for re-election? <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. Do so we have a case of bona fide voter fraud right here in Cuyahoga County? Layla, we know how rare it is. What are the allegations here?
3: It appears that Donald Trump might have been right. Voter fraud is a problem, just, <laughs> just not in the way he thought. <laughs> but um, in this case, 56-year-old attorney James Saunders has been indicted on two counts of illegal voting. He's accused of voting in both Cuyahoga County and Broward County, Florida, in the 2020 presiden- presidential and 2022 general elections. Records show that he is registered to vote at both his Shaker Boulevard home And a condo in Pompano Beach. And the Federal Elections Commission records show Saunders has made several small donations to the campaigns of former President Donald Trump and organizations that support Republican candidates for office. So ironically, Trump claimed that Joe Biden was the beneficiary of widespread voter fraud, but if this guy gets found guilty of voter fraud, it'll actually cost Trump a vote. <laughs> so how do you like them apples? <laughs> well,
0: I don't think we're finished with this story. I was talking to Corey Schaefer, our court reporter, and he's looking at some of the other cases that were forwarded to Cayuga County for consideration. So I'm not going to give anything away, Ooh, but there might be another juicy. story coming. Very good. It's Today in Ohio. Laura, you previewed this Thursday. Let's come back to it. How big is the national debt and more importantly, can you put that number into perspective?
1: It's really big. It's 31.4 trillion dollars. And and I was wrong yesterday when I talked about this. It's not 70000 some per person. It's $95,000 per person. That is a whole lot more than the average American salary. And if we're just talking taxpayers, it's about $247,700 for every taxpayer in the country. So, you you know, you everybody could buy, every taxpayer could buy themselves a pretty nice house with what the national debt is up. If every person working in Ohio worked minimum wage for 40 hours a week, we could repay the national debt in 278 years. Wow. It's just mind-blowing, right?
0: Yeah. What What are some of the other things that Zachary put into his story about this?
1: That it, um, it would take uh, $280 billion to solve world hunger by 2030, so this debt would solve it 112 times. <laughs> Ad- adjusted for inflation, the national debt could pay for almost eight World War IIs based on U.S. war spending. And when you think about how much, you know, we spent on World War Two. It's it's massive. And obviously the national debt didn't happen overnight. We've had it since the very beginning of this country. During the American Civil War, the debt increased by four thousand percent and crossed into this billion dollar threshold. But the two biggest debt increasers is, have been Barack Obama, oh, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump in response to the Great Recession and COVID nineteen. So we've really just ramped it up in the last ten, you know twenty years.
0: At some point, the House of Cards has to collapse, right? I and mean, at some point, you can't borrow anymore, and you your your credit rating is a disaster. If you if you kept running up debt year after year after year on home renovation projects, eventually you couldn't pay it back, and you'd lose it all.
1: Well I think that's the argument, right? That's why we're finally talking about it. And the Republicans have tried to take a stand and saying we don't want to add any more to this debt. No one's talking about really repaying it, but they're just talking about the debt limit and and the deficit that we spend every year. Every year we make this bigger and bigger and bigger. And other countries have, you know, done something about it. I remember I don't know how many years ago it was, but Canada put in the GST, like it's like a I think it's eight percent income tax or sorry, sales per ta- sales tax on anything you buy. It goes directly toward paying down the national debt. So that's why if you go to Canada, you end up paying about fifteen percent sales tax on anything, because the idea is that is specifically paying down that debt. But yeah, we but
0: there's no appetite for tax increases in this country. I don't see that <laughs> no, happening. No. All right, you're listening to the today in Ohio. Which hospitals in Northeast Ohio lead the pack for patient safety? And Lisa, why are so few getting top grades? Should we be worried?
2: It's interesting. Yeah, when you look at the the rankings, the, the fewest were, I think, in the A group. But anyway, uh, Leapfrog Group safety grades rankings for spring of this year of 3,000 American hospitals. Um, so uh, A grades. And so let me go back. So the Cleveland Clinic got A grades. For its main campus, also Lutheran, Hillcrest, Avon, Fairview, Marymount, and South Point. Now, they got B grades for... Um, I'm sorry. My, I'm trying to find my notes here. Anyway, so we'll move on to UH. So UH got A grades for Ahuja, Giaga, Portage, and Parma campuses. And then their main campus and St. John got B grades, but a whole lot of C grades. So when you look at all of the hospitals that were ranked, only 29% got A grades. The biggest got C grades at 39 percent. C grades include Metro Health System, Southwest General Health Center, Summa Health Barberton, and UH Elyria TriPoint and Lake West Center campuses.
0: So does a C grade mean that if I go in to get a knee replacement that there's a danger they'll do the wrong knee? Or does it mean they're terrible about infection control? When I go to a hospital, I don't want to hear they got a C grade for safety.
2: Yeah, it's all of that. I mean, it's falls, it's it's wrong medications, it's, it's you know, surgery errors. But Cleveland Clinic says they estimate they saved 500 lives with a sepsis team that goes to detect and to treat infections that can result in organ and tissue failure. Now, MetroHealth uh, CEO Erica Steed, who's only been on the job a couple of months, said she's created an Institute of Patient-Centered Excellence to oversee quality and safety issues, hopefully to bump up their C grade the next Ranking,
0: yeah, I, that's distressing. The, the, we have three major hospital systems in Northeast Ohio: UH Cleveland Clinic and Metro Health. The fact that one of them gets a C is pretty distressing because that just doesn't seem okay. Look, when you put your your life into the hands of a hospital system, you're as vulnerable as you get. I don't want to be with a C. Do you? <laughs> no. <laughs> frightening stuff.
2: And right. Ohio, oh no, I was just gonna say overall, I and mean, when you look at it by state, Ohio came in number twenty-six. Surprisingly New Jersey was the number one for patient safety.
0: That's not surprising. I'm from New Jersey. We care about <laughs> safety in New Jersey. You're listening to today in Ohio. We talked this week about Mike DeWine's plan to upgrade dozens of highway rest areas in Ohio. And now we have the list of Ohio themed music that will play at them. Layla, well, how about sharing with us some of these tunes?
3: Well, first of all, a big thank you to reporter Jeremy Pelzer, who gave me a second chance to enjoy this story about highway rest stops. <laughs> I hope we can keep finding ways to write about this. Maybe we can take our kids on the storybook trail and record the reactions to it or something. <laughs> but yeah, Jeremy published the full playlist of of so-called Ohio-themed songs that are going to be played at the dozens of renovated rest stops in Ohio. And in some cases, the Ohio connection is obvious, but in other cases, hmm, not so much. But these are—Ohio Department of Transportation director Jack Marchbanks, who also hosts a weekly jazz radio show in the Columbus area, picked this music. And the list includes artists who are from Ohio, like Tracy Chapman, Devo and the Black Keys, both from Akron, John Legend, who grew up in Springfield, and Dean Martin from Steubenville. So— You'll have Whip It and That's Amore on the same playlist, which is kind of jarring in my opinion, but my guess is most people will not be hanging out in the rest stop long enough to hear more than one track of this playlist, much to the the governor's chagrin, I'm sure. (laughs) Then you've got songs that are about various parts of the state, like Bruce Springsteen's Youngstown and Cleveland Rocks, of course, by the Presidents of the United States of America. And then there are songs like Hang On Sloopy, which you know come on everyone associates with ohio state so you have got those clichés uh <laughs> what else but would they
2: like to know <laughs> not on the list are the pretenders my city was gone and neil young's ohio mm-hmm. interestingly Maybe they enough, wanted to not keep on the it list up beat
1: right <laughs> oh, i was surprised
0: Youngstown's not upbeat, though. I mean, Springsteen's Youngstown is not an upbeat song. I I'm, I, I think they should have Ohio on the list. That's part of our history. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something that you know, we just comm- commemorated once again yesterday. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised, Lisa, that they left that off.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm surprised they don't have the song Ohio by Saving Jane, which is my favorite Ohio, too. And
2: also but. the Outlaws' Girl from Ohio, which is kind of an obscure song, but still... So a lot of things I think have been left off the list. But I
1: did like that they have Road Outside Columbus, Ohio by OAR, which is like the soundtrack of, you know, OAR was like a soundtrack in college for me. So that's nice.
0: But of all the tunes, Dean Martin sang. Really, do we have to have a more? Eh? I mean, it, it would have been nice to get something a little less know, oh,
1: Some low I mean, Cleveland fruit. Rocks is on this list if you want really to go small.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do want to push back on all this, you know, rest stop hate. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Laura and Layla might want to just, you know, stop and go. But there are people who eat lunch there. Their kids have too much energy, so they let them run around. I mean, I spend about two hours at a rest stop because I usually stop to eat or whatever and consult wow. my map. So, I mean, not everyone just, you two
1: know, just hours. stays and goes. You're going to hear the entire playlist because there's 33 <laughs> songs on there. Yeah, you'll probably hear it a couple times. You know, well, Laila, I think you should sing at least one of them. There's
0: there's Lisa showing some amore for the rest areas. Right. We'll leave it there. It's today in Ohio for a Friday. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Come on back Monday. We'll be talking about the
2: news.